Amen. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. We're going to try to fix this speaker. Uh, I'll give you some updates. How many of you were here last week and got to hear our friend Suresh from India share their story? Yes, a few of us. It was quite amazing. Suresh is, uh, leads a ministry called Harvest India, and it touches um, all over India. They have planted over 1,500 churches in the last 20-something years. They have thousands of orphans that they care for, uh, widows, elderly homes, um, AIDS group homes. They care for the lepers. They care for all sorts of people. It's a phenomenal ministry that we are partnering with. We're going to take a short-term trip in January. Um, for more information, go to our website. But Suresh is a good friend, and I was blown away by our leadership community. Every few months we get together as leaders and we just have a meal together. And I had Suresh kind of share his story and a little bit about what type of leadership he, style he has, I suppose. Um, one of the questions that baffled me was this question. What do you, how do you uh, engage in intercessory prayer for the ministry? Because if you see the landscape of Suresh's kind of ministry, it's, it's massive. You compare it to the Red Cross, it's that significant. Um, and, and he kind of shockingly said, well, uh, um, we don't really have an intercessory team. And if you're new to the church, intercessory is where Christians engage in kind of a spiritual carrying of ministry on behalf of the other ministries. We, we call it prayer. And so it's just when we pray for stuff. And, and Suresh said, like, our, our, our intercessory team are the orphans that we care for, are the widows, are the lepers, are the, um, uh, the college students, they're the, the staff, they have like 300 staff members, um, they're, they're the schools, the universities that they lead. Thousands of people pray for an hour a day every day for this ministry. They have their entire ministry from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. praying for Harvest India. Kids, I mean, he told his story of his family wakes up together, he's got 14, 16 adopted kids plus three of his own kids, plus his wife. And every morning at 5 a.m., they, they start the day off with worship and prayer for an hour. And so I thought I could challenge all of us from 5 a.m. Just kidding. All of you laugh. And I wonder why our hospitality team's not growing. We don't have the 5 a.m. prayer team. Um, I was blown away and my heart honestly was, was I was convicted by that. I, I felt, man, our, we don't need an intercessory team. We need the church to be the intercessory team. So I just want to throw that out there and challenge all of us to engage more in that stuff. We'll talk about it more. Second, um, we are kind of finishing the resurrection project. I'm going to talk on Father's Day stuff today. And um, next week we're starting a new series through the rest of the summer on spiritual disciplines. Um, we're going to be looking at the practices, transformational practices of Jesus and how we can engage in them on a daily basis um, to become more like him. Um, what's, the good news is, is Bill, Bill, the other teaching pastor, he got his doctorate in ministry in this stuff. So he's pretty, pretty well versed in this stuff. So you'll be, you'll be excited to hear his sermons um, and my sermons, but mostly his. Um, next week, we're going to kick that off. You don't want to miss next week. We're going to do, do an intro on the spiritual disciplines, okay? You're with me. Dad, stand up. How many dads do we have here? Let's, let's give them a round of applause. Yeah. Come on, dads. Happy Father's Day. Okay, stay standing. Stay standing. Okay. If you've been a dad for more than a year, stay standing. More than a year as a dad. Stay. Thank you, Jeremy, for sitting. <laughs> if you've been a dad for more than five years, stay standing. Awesome. Uh, more than ten years. 
More than, okay, thank you. More than 15 years. Okay, we're going down slowly. More than 20. 20, okay, this is going to be a competition. So, uh, 25. Now here, 25, 20. Okay, good work, guys. Great job. 25 years. Okay, stay standing. Don't sit gray here. Let's go. 30 years. 30, okay. So, what, what do you have? How many? 33 and a half years. Oh, wait, wait, we got some in the back. He beat you. He beat you. 33? He's the man. Okay, good. We had Jerry here. And if you know Jerry, he's been a dad for 44 years, and that was really cool. So it was great to have him here. Um, today's Father's Day. And um, it, for many of us, this is a day we celebrate. We've had amazing pops. Um, we had, we've had examples of what it means to be a father, of, of a husband, what it means to be. We just look up to our dads. We celebrate our dads. We've had extraordinary fathers. But some of us don't have that story. In fact, most people don't have that story. Most people have a different story. We've had neglect, rejection, lack of validation, affirmation. We've had an absentee father. And this is a hard day. Um, and I thought this morning I could talk to the church because I've been confronted by uh, some of the statistics in the world that have to do with fathers. And um, I thought maybe we can talk about it and, and share with you this morning what, what might it look like for us to be a new generation, to pass off our faith to the next generation. Um, I'm not a dad yet, and my wife's not expecting yet, so uh, no news yet. Um, and uh, but I've been through uh, educate. I've been a graduated undergraduate school in pastoral leadership. I'm, I've been in seminary, um, and I tell you, I, I have no idea what it means to be a father. I'm a husband, a, stu- a student, a, a, a son, a brother, a friend. And with all of those roles, I have no idea how you throw this other loop in there like being a dad or a father. But I do want to share with us the fact that we are in desperate need of fathers. There is a a state of fathering that we need to address as a church. I want to begin with some statistics. Um, And I apologize if these are offensive, but I think we have to start here to understand where I want to get this morning. And this isn't just for dads, this is for everyone. But here's some statistics that I got from um, one book, and you can get the the resource online. But bear with me as I read these. Um, More than 75% of American children are at risk because of parental deprivation, even in two-parent homes. Fewer than 25% of young boys and girls enjoy an hour a day of relatively individualized contact with their fathers. Less than 25% get an hour a day. 63% of all youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists, 71% of high school dropouts, 75% of adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers, centers, 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions, and 85% of all youth in prison grew up in fatherless homes. Children who live absent from their biological fathers are on average at least two to three times, and one study has shown uh, up to ten times more likely to be poor, to use drugs, to experience educational, health, emotional, behavioral problems, to be victims of child abuse, 
and or to engage in criminal behavior than their peers who live with their married biological or adoptive parents. Up to ten times more likely. Children with involved, loving fathers are significantly more likely to do well in school, have healthy self-esteem, exhibit empathy and pro-social behavior, and avoid high-risk behavior such as drug use, truancy, and criminal activity compared to children who have uninvolved fathers. How does that feel? Alarming, doesn't it? Sound terrible? This has to do with the systems that are around us that we're engaged in. This has to do with fathering in our current state. Now, I want to share some statistics that have to do with our faith, and we're going to kind of settle in here. Um, If both a father and a mother go to church regularly, 33% of their children will follow their footsteps. So if you attend church as a couple... 33% 33% of your, church, of your kids will follow in your, your footsteps regularly, while 41% will become irregular attendees. Let me say this statistic real quick too. Listen to this. 90% of all boys that grow up in the church will not have a practicing faith by the age of 20. 90% of all those that grow up in youth group will not have a practicing faith by the age of 20. There are a lot of reasons for that. That's why our youth group does discipleship, not games and fun. We teach kids Jesus. Anyways, that's a side note. But So going back to that statistic, if both parents go 33%, if a father attends irregularly while that wife goes regularly to church, only 3% of the couple's children will become consistent churchgoers or have a practicing faith while 59 will become irregular. So you get this. The couple goes together, 33%. Just the mom goes, it drops down to 3%. Frightening. But look at what happens when the dad goes to church. If a father is a regular attender at church and his wife is sporadic or doesn't attend at all, the percentage of children who will become regular churchgoers actually goes up to 38%, while 44% will become irregular worshipers as an adult. So if the dad goes and the mom doesn't, it goes up to 38%. So moms, you can stay at home. The statistics reveal the significant influence a father has over a household. The significant influence that a father has over his kids and family when he is living a life that breathes the Spirit of God. Exodus talks about, for those that are disobedient to God, it will be judged for three to four generations, which has a whole other... um, interesting facts about it but it also says that for the one that loves and is obedient to God God will bless him for a thousand generations there's something significant going on in the world today when we are raising up a fatherless generation and when our kids that grow up in church are leaving the faith another statistic says that uh, 25% of all married couples go to church uh, the wives go to church alone um or I'm sorry, less than 25% go together. It's, it's just the statistics are phenomenal. So the, I hope that we can just see that the father's influence over their children is, 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 is significant. Um, what scripture reveals is that uh, it takes common sense and both a mother and father to pass on their faith to the next generation. That that is the design all along. It's not 
uh, uh, Sunday school or midweeks or even church. It's, the, it's the, the responsibility for a mom and a dad to actively participate and develop and give away their faith to their kids. That's what scripture teaches. My question is, what kind of faith are you passing down? Some of us don't have kids. Some of us aren't even married. Some of us will never get married. What type of legacy are we going to leave? What kind of faith are we giving our children? How are we to show our kids how to fall in love with Jesus and how to be loved by Jesus if we struggle with that concept ourselves? If the God that we reveal is fussy and self-centered and fickle and selfish and anxious, what are our kids going to receive? What's the world going to see? How many of us walk around today going, I want the faith that my parents had or have. I want to know Jesus and his intimacy and I want to be intimate with Jesus the way my mom is intimate or the way my dad loves God. I want to have a faith like that. How many of us can honestly say that? For the most part, we don't have that experience. Some of us are lucky. Some of us are blessed that we have parental figures in our life that have given us that gift. But most of the stories I've heard are are just drenched with father wounds. Dads who are physically absent, emotionally detached, silent, angry, aggressive, never blessing or affirming, and always critical. Father wounds are far more common today than mother wounds. There's some sociological reasons for that. This has been my experience as well in the church. And to, to be honest, to be healthy individuals in society, we have to begin to learn and make peace with our childhood. We must learn to allow ourselves to grieve the childhood we didn't have or to celebrate the one that we did have. Either way, it gets to the point, and we must recognize that the way we relate to our families and the way we relate to society and life will re- be connected to the way we relate to God. Here's some stories that help make this point. I have a friend who's very successful. By the age of 27, uh, he had 35 employees making lots of money. He drives nice cars, has a great family, has a nice house, has all the gadgets. Um, He's grown his business and he's started multiple businesses. He's one of those guys that you look to and just says he's got it all. He's successful. He's good looking. All those things. During the journey of his faith, um, we realized, I've been walking with him for quite some time just as a friend and he realized that uh, he became distant from his wife because he began to work all the time. His life was filled with anxiety and panic attacks and stress. He's hy- hypochondriac. Um, he is just filled with, his life is a mess internally. And what he began to realize is that something deep down inside said that in order to find value in life, he had to succeed. In order to have worth, it was connected to his bank account. It was connected to the amount of employees. It was connected to his cars. It was connected to all this stuff. His value, his self-worth, his success equaled his value, equaled his, his sense of being loved. And then as we began to walk together, what he realized is that the only time as a kid growing up with his parents that his father showed affection and love was when he got straight A's or was MVP for the sports team. It wasn't that he scored 15 
on the basketball, 15 points on the basketball game. But he had to score 25 and then 30. He always got pushed to the next level and to the next level. He only knew love through his success and performance. Do you know anyone like this? How does he relate to God? How do you think? How many Bible studies did he go to? How much money did he give away? How, many time, how long did he read his Bible for? Did he wake up at 5 a.m. like Suresh? He's the type of guy that would, would, would build his, his performance-based discipleship to Jesus. Do you know anyone like this? Nothing's good enough. There's always more to give. I have a friend, she uh, never knew her dad, wasn't a Christian until late in her life. She um, f- sought after older men in rela- sexual relationships to receive validation for life. She only received loving validation from older men that she was actively involved in. She married at 18 to a 35-year-old from Ukraine. They ended up getting divorced. Eventually, she came to faith And you know what happened when she immediately came to faith? You know what happened? She realized two things. One, that she had this deep wound that she had never been loved by a man. And she was seeking to fill it all the time. But when she came to faith, this is the coolest experience. She literally had God hold her hand as the father that she never had and walk through all of those past relationships one by one, allowing her to grieve and be healed to the point where she was a little girl sitting in her daddy's arms. And she realized how much power her absent father that she never met had over her and eventually her relationship with God. She had to work that out. Do you know anyone like that? I have another friend. I have so many friends sometimes. (laughs) Especially when I don't need them. No, um... Where are they when I need them? No, um, that was a joke. I'm kidding. Come on. He had a crazy conversion story. Addicted to everything. Alcohol, drugs, pornography, uh, women. When he came to faith, he couldn't accept that God would just give him grace. He had to earn it. He, did, he hated who he once was. And so his testimony was, I was this terrible person, but now I believe. And what did he do immediately? He started to evangelize. He would go to Huntington Beach, stand on a soapbox, pass out tracts, and try to convince people to know Jesus. And he would share his, his amazing conversion story. But that wasn't good enough. Then it became about doing more Bible studies. Uh, it, came, it, it came about uh, uh, not just going to church, but doing the worship midweeks and prayer gatherings. And, and then it was, I, I can't surf anymore because surfing represented who I once was. He was replacing all of those old behaviors and patterns for now good spiritual behaviors and patterns. Do you know, and then he, I'm not going to play music or if I, I play, wor- I'm only going to play worship music. I'm not going to watch TV. I'm going to watch um, um, uh, Fireproof. You know what I'm talking about? Like this. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, we need some really good Christian-centered, like right in the heart of Hollywood media going out. And we do have it, but it's rare. Anyways, uh, I love it though. Great message. I cried like a baby. Um, Replacing old behavior with this new Jesus behavior. He based where he was at with God 
on all the stuff he did. Do you know what I'm talking about? He didn't feel right with God if he didn't go to church on Sunday. He didn't feel right with God if he didn't read for an hour a day. He didn't feel right with God if he didn't sing worship songs. He felt conviction if he listened to rap music on accident. Do you know anyone like this? That the stories we tell ourselves change the way we reflect with God and and they really all reveal to us the type of God we're worshiping in the first place. That for some reason that friend had a, a, a need to earn something. To prove to God that He was worth something. That, that His grace wasn't just, just grace to receive, but that now He had to change everything about Himself because that's what will make Him worthy because He did so much other stuff. That in order to please God, He had to go, do, read, get it over and over again. Do you know anyone like that? Some of us worship the God that's an absentee landlord. The God that's not really interested until we have to pay rent or something goes wrong. Do you know what I'm talking about? That type of God that doesn't really care who you date, what you do online, what you do when you go to a friend's house and there's partying going on. Do you, what you do when your, 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 your neighbor really makes you mad or when your roommate pisses you off. Excuse me for saying that. But do you know what I'm talking about? The God that's uninvolved with that? Or the cosmic traffic cop, the God that's going to write you a ticket when you messed up. So you live anxiously, not trying to mess things up or get off on the track. Because you know He's going to pull you over. Or He's going to, your card's coming, He's going to pull it. You've been blessed three times, the next one's going to be a curse. Do you know, anyone worship that type of God? I'm the only one. Okay, cool. I'm just going to confess the rest of the time. Liars. How we live reveals the God we worship and the faith we're passing on. You want a, you want a marriage that's going to be vibrant and healthy? It's not going to be cu- come because you, you demand it or just because you pray together. It will, be cu- cu- it will happen because you lay down your life like Jesus asks, together. And you allow the Holy Spirit to transform it. It's not easy. It it takes time. You want to be a good parent? I'm sure it's going to be the same process. Now, what kind of God are you worshiping? What kind of God will you pass on to your kids? I want to talk about that type of God this morning. So if you would, go to John chapter 15. I really have one message, and I'm going to say it a hundred different ways. So just expect it. I look at the statistics, and to me, it's not about changing it dramatically other than us individually learning how to receive something powerful. So John chapter 15. John, if you have a green, if you need a Bible, there's some Bibles around the room. I don't see anyone moving for a Bible. So I think they'll be up here on the scripture. So let's read this together. John chapter 15, verse 13. I want to just describe to you some of the language that Jesus uses to, to describe this God. He says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. The greatest love is to lay down one's life for their friend. John 16, verse 27. The Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I come from God. John 14, 18. We we don't have these up. Oh, we do. Okay. Um, Jesus says to His followers, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by the Father. 
and I too will love them and show myself to them. The one who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I too will love them. And look at the way John writes it in 1 John. Go to the epistle, 1 John, chapter 4, verse 9. This is John arguing a, a point about God. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. An atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is asked in the Gospels, What is God like? What is he like? And he says, God's like a shepherd. He's got a hundred sheep. One runs away. He leaves the 99 sheep, which is crazy, to go after the one sheep that was lost. That's kind of what our God is like. He tells another story to the son who uh, is, is, is disrespectful and rejects his father and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. And in that culture... And in that time, the father had the right to kill his son on the spot because he was not honoring his son. And his dad says, nope, you can have half of the kingdom. Gives him his inheritance. The son goes off, squanders it away. Comes back with a bunch of excuses. I want to be a slave. I'm sorry. And before he can get the excuses out, his father runs to him, throws his arms around him and says, you are my son. Gives him a ring and his robe, declaring that this is his one and true son. The neighbors would have been freaking out. What kind of guy is this? Kills the fatted calf, throws a party and says, my son that was once dead is now alive. You want to know what God's like? That's what God's like. It makes no sense. His love is, is a mysterious, undeserving, unmerited favor over us. And that's called grace. That's the God of the New Testament. One of the most controversial messages of Jesus Christ is that God loves you as you are and not as you should be. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't have to climb a ladder. You don't have to jump through hoops. You don't have to go door to door. It's just received and it's called grace. And this is the story of the New Testament God that we serve, live, and worship. But do we know that Jesus? Do you know that Jesus? Is that the Jesus that you know loves you? Do you know we're at the very center of your being? He desires to be with you. He longs to hear your voice. To spend time with you. I've lived most of my life proving that he, I'm, I'm lovable. I've lived most of my life proving that I am valuable by my success by meeting everyone else's expectations of me, by proving that success equals value and worth. I've preached sermons out of a desire to please people. I've lived in a way, if 
you know my story, where I, I've had difficult times looking in the mirror saying that there's someone attractive, beautiful, good, looking back. I've had to wake up in mornings with written on the mirror, you are the beloved, because I forget by the time I walk outside the door. I have come into faith saying, I need to read the Bible in 90 days. That will prove to God that I am a disciple. True story. Last year, January. Did it too. (laughs) Was it spiritual? No. Was that for him? No. That was for me. Did God ask me? No. I come to faith and I think that Whatever I do equals who I am. Does anyone else struggle with like that? That you're you're so good at at dancing around relationships, trying to just make sure people know where you are, what you've done, who you've been with. Does anyone else struggle with that humble bragging problem? In Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, if you would go there, I want to share with you the most provocative understanding that we can have of Jesus. One of the most. It's a passage that reveals the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's a passage that reveals a source of ministry that Jesus has. It's a passage that we share in. Matthew three sixteen. Jesus comes to John the Baptist and says this in the scriptures. It gives an account. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open and he saw a spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. You are my son, Whom I love, with you I am well pleased. It is a father blessing his son. It is a validating voice of a loving dad declaring to everyone around that this is my boy. It's before he walks on water. It's before he's raised from the dead. It's before he preaches a message. It's before he casts out demons. It's before he heals the sick or does any type of miracle. Before he selects his disciples. Before he proclaims the kingdom. Jesus is fully established as the beloved son of the heavenly father. He will go through trial like no one else. His friends will desert him. People will say he's demon possessed. He's a Samaritan. He's a, he's a drunkard. He's a glutton. His family will try to stop his ministry. His closest friends will betray him. He will stay naked on a cross with his friends deserting him. And he will be raised from the dead and worshipped on a mountaintop. Yet some will still doubt. Matthew 28 verse 16. And if you say he, do, he did it because he's God, you're missing a key element. He did it because he knew who God was and where he stood with God. Jesus is fully established in his identity before he can do anything to prove, deserve, or earn it. It's not found in what he did or does, it's found in who he was. What's the first thing that's tempted? What is the first thing that Jesus is tempted to, to prove or to do? Do you remember the story right after this baptism story? Now, the baptism story is phenomenal. The, the dove 
descending is the same language in Greek that it is in Hebrew in Genesis chapter 1 when the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. It, it's, it has to do with a dove fluttering their wings. It's absolutely beautiful. It's this new creation story. It's theological, yet it's so practical. What's the first thing that Jesus was tempted to do? Do you remember the question that he was tempted with? You are my, you are the, my son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. What does the tempter come and say? If... You are the Son of God. Then do this. Prove it. Earn it. Show it to everyone. Get on top. If you are the Son of God, this. If this. How many of us know what that means? Know what it's like to be tempted? How many of us know this Jesus? The Jesus that's the beloved. How many of us share this ministry? I want to just suggest this morning that we share in this very identity, this word being spoken over us. In Romans chapter 8 verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 14, Romans 8 14, Paul is writing this theolog- systematic theology of the gospel to the church in Rome. He's breaking down to a group of Gentiles and Jews the gospel from the Old Testament before from sin to, to resurrection. There's this beautifully well-written, articulate, systematic approach to the gospel. And he gets to the middle, Romans 8. And he talks about our identity in Christ. And it says in verse 14, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to son or daughtership. And by Him we cry, Daddy, Father, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, in fact, we share in the, the delicate whisper of a loving Father saying to us, You are my son. You are my daughter, with whom, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That we are Abba's child. That, that the most significant part of our faith is that we come into the center of our being. It's not a static experience. It's, it's not this, this trance-like emotional thing. It's not this state of life. But it's the sim- simple recognition that the creator of the universe loves us as we are and not as we should be. That is the beginning of all faith. What do you hear about yourself? What are the words that you can hear when you close your eyes and no one else is around? What bubbles up inside? Seriously. For those of us that follow Jesus, what do you hear when, he, when you're confronted by the divine? Do you hear the lists like I do? You need to do this. This isn't working. You've got to be a better husband. The, the, the spiritual convictions. Do you, do you hear the to-do lists like I do? Do you hear the, the, the missed opportunities like I do? Do you hear the, the, the tug that, that if you do this, you will be more valuable, more worthy? Do you hear the tug on your heart or do you hear the delicate whisper of the loving Father over and over again saying you're good enough? I love you. Rest. Rest in who you are. You're never going to deserve it. Just receive it. 
my beloved. How, my beloved. Do you hear that? I agree with Brennan Manning when he says that when we come to our our death and we we are confronted with Jesus, he will ask us one question. Did you believe I loved you? That I desire you? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear your voice? The real believers will respond and say, Yes, Jesus, I know that you love me. And I tried to shape my life around that love. And if you're like me, hopefully you'll learn it. But maybe our response might look something like, I thought that was for them. I thought it was a cheesy intellectual understanding and not real. I thought I still had to, to, to prove something to you. I thought that it meant so much more. Not just that I am loved. Do you see why it's so important to lay hold of this basic truth of life? That you're only going to be as big as your own concept of God. You, will only, you are only going to be as big as your own concept of God. A French philosopher, Pascal, once said, God made man in his own image and man returned the compliment. When we make our God in our own image, He will always be fussy and rude and narrow-minded and judgmental and insecure and unforgiving and unloving like us. Or like me. And the God that I see, so many of my friends, so many of us, so many of Christians worship is far too small. He's not the God that we see in the Word. He's not the God revealed by Jesus Christ in the flesh who at this very moment comes to us in our seat and says to us, I have a word for you. To you, where you are right now. He says, I know your whole life story. I know every skeleton in your closet. I know every sin, every dishonest, everything that's been dishonest and degraded love that, you, that has darkened your past. And right now I know your faith, your feeble prayer life, and your inconsistent discipleship. But my word is this, I dare you to trust that I love you as you are and not as you should be. That I love you as you are and not as you should be. I believe now more than ever we need men who become fathers to know the radical love of God that allowed the gushy, emotional, romantic, outrageous, benevolent God, Jesus Christ, to to love us as little boys. To love us as men that don't have a clue, that never get it right, that keep blowing it every time, that have a quick temper, just as we are, and not as we should be. If we can come to that place, our kids are going to be okay. Do you know that Jesus?
Can I pray for us? Lord, sobering reality that you could even perceive or conceive or think of loving us the way we are. I want to reject it. I want to say that that leads to complacency. There's no possible way that that's that's truth. I want to try to earn it, show you, prove to you, God, that I am lovable, yet you you, you seem to, to pick me up and put me in your lap and just say, you're my little boy or little girl. I see the statistics. And I think we need a miracle. We need to change this generation. But I think it doesn't start with doing. It starts with simply being. So Lord, would you give us your spirit? Teach us to cry out, Abba, Father. Teach us to move away from our need to perform and need to prove and need to to do and allow us to sit comfortably as your beloved. Lord, I just pray for the garden. May we raise up a generation here, God, that loves you that is passionate for you, that knows their belovedness and that lives out of that.